Almost. 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 Major. 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 Holy fucking shit, this is major! Hello, welcome to Almost Major, the podcast where we talk about films made by mini, distributed by Mini Major Studios. My name is Bryden Doyle. I'm here with my co-host Kevin Tudor. Hey. Uh, and Charlie Nash. Hello. And our special guests returning to be with us after uh, the first double feature of uh, Van Wilder and Boat Trip. They've come back now for a double feature of two. I think we could call better movies, uh, Buffalo 66 and Jesus the Son. We have Michael Seidel coming back. Michael, how are you? Hi. Thank you for having me back. Uh, it, yeah, uh, they might be a little bit better than those two <laughs> previously mentioned. We, we've given you a purple heart. You were wounded in the past two episodes you were on. <laughs> I pressed record and it says, please ask the host to give you permission to record. No, you're supposed to record on Audacity. I am recording on GarageBand as well, but that's just my mic. Yeah, yeah, stuff. that's fine. Is that yeah, is yeah, that yeah. fine? Okay, I'm just making now sure. Now we have to start uh, all we over. We don't have to redo. God we don't at all. It, no, no. Bryden <laughs> did it perfect in one take. He's like Michelle Pfeiffer with that whip scene in <laughs> Batman Returns. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, Bryden whip scene from Batman Returns Doyle. Yeah. <laughs> The year, the yearbook was just like we have to put the entire name. Are you kidding me? It's gonna be tough to put on business cards. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like the most famous one take things. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I feel like there's got to be one huge uh, one that people. I, I mean, to. maybe it's on my mind because he passed away today, or the news broke that he passed away today. But uh, John Lucadart's weekend with that extended tracking shot of the cars. Did they only oh, do that yeah. once though? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, because that's the difference of one take. It's just like Pfeiffer did that. They only shot it once and they were just like, yeah, that's great. That's all we need. I would hope that that scene in Weekend would just only one take, but. He just, for a very he, long time. He just started oh, yeah. that car accident. That's that's what happened. He just got the camera. <laughs> Every single time he's just like, ah, oh, get the cars together and break in, get everything. Yeah, he got. It's like in that scene in The Good Son, he just got like a small boy to throw a dummy off of the bridge. <laughs> And they were just like, and he was just like, roll with it, go. Yeah, yeah. I need to rewatch the Good Son. Oh my gosh, I have seen the Good Son more than once, and it is uh, who did the Good Son? Joseph uh, Rubin, who did the Stepfather. Um, oh wow, that tracks. The Stepfather. That's a pretty good movie. Yeah. Wait, I the remake of the Stepfather, right? No, the original with Terry Quinn. Um, no shit. And he also yeah. did. Sorry, go the ahead. remake has a Nip Tuck guy. What's his name? Yeah, Dylan, Dylan McDermott. No. Walsh. No. The other guy. Dylan Walsh. Yeah. <laughs> Dylan Walsh. It's another Dylan. Yeah. He, he also did The Forgotten with Julianne Moore, which I saw in theaters. <laughs> I downloaded that on a cam rip and LimeWire in 04. Yeah. I when, we, when we had Julianne Moore at the Coolidge Corner Theater for uh, our Coolidge Award for her, that was uh, not one of the posters we put up when she came to. <laughs> you could say it was Forgotten. <laughs> What, what about prize winner of defiance ohio was that one of them i think wasn't that like a tv movie we did not no we didn't put up i, I rented that at some point I, I remember watching that with my mom <laughs> dad i don't know we didn't put up that we didn't put up blindness i don't know if we put up oh. hannibal but we showed it as a midnight um huh. yeah anyway she was as wonderful as you'd expect love her um yeah 
Yeah. She, Imagine we also, Julianne Moore in Buffalo 66. It, oh, Jesus. Good There's transition. also um, a clip now that we consistently quote in jest now because there's an intro for Welcome to the Coolidge Corner Theater and there's like just a montage of things that have happened, like live events, and there's uh, a clip of Julianne Moore going, I saw a racer head here. (laughs) 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 So now, whenever we walk by and we're shutting the doors for when a movie's about to start, we'll just all go, I saw a racer head here, (laughs) and everybody was high. Um... You need to put that quip in the intro of Almost Major. Almost Major. You just add it. You just add it into that little. I saw get, your little stinger bit here. <laughs> we have turned it into a bit of a meme. The pharmacy scene in Magnolia, like where she's screaming at people. We Come just put away. like a. We just put an. I saw a racer head here. Like, at, at, at the pharmacy. Uh, I'm gonna pass out. Anyways, <laughs> as as we mentioned at the top of the show, we are talking about Buffalo '66 as our first movie. It premiered at Sundance in January 1998, and then, uh, sorry, opened to two theaters on June 26th in 1998, and expanded at 58 theaters. It was nominated for the Grand Jury Prizes at the Sundance Film Festival and for Best First Feature at the Indie Spirit Awards. It was made for a budget of 1.5 million dollars. It made 39. $1,555 in its opening weekend and led to a domestic and overall gross of $2.3 million. The top five films that came out at the opening weekend were, Let's Do- go. were Dr. Doolittle, yeah. Mulan, The yeah. X the X Files, but the subtitle I did not know about, The X Files, Fight the Future. Fight the Future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, out of Sight, great movie, and The Truman Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number one song in the U.S. in this week was The Boy Is Mine by Brandy and Monica. Yeah, I think that's Timbaland. <laughs> that, that was number one for like 18 weeks. It's a good wow. song. Oh, yeah. And then the number one song <laughs> in Canada this week is Torn by Natalie Imbruglia. And interestingly Ooh. enough, the video for Torn was directed by Alison McLean, who directed Jesus' Son, which we will be talking about next week. Um, she, she only did like two, maybe three music videos, and they're... Mostly all for Natalie and Briglia. It's really weird. That is oh wow, very weird. wow. Uh, what what are the thoughts on Torn? I think Torn's a pretty good song. I know some people kind of it's fucking fantastic. Yeah, oh no, no it's Torn fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. There's a great uh, remake she did maybe five years ago on an album where she did some covers and then she did a cover of Torn, and it's a really damn good cover of her own. Song. And that's a very distinctive <laughs> music video that I remember seeing in my youth. So. Big ups to McLean. There we go. Buffalo 66. Going. Uh, it revolves around uh, Billy Brown, who is played by Vincent Gallo, uh, the writer-director of the film. He has just been released from prison. He has a visit planned with his parents, where they will meet his wife, although Billy does not actually have a wife. So he kidnaps Layla, played by Christina Ricci, and makes her pose as his wife for his visit with his parents. Like I said, the film is written and directed by Vincent Gallo. This is his first time directing a feature film. Uh, he has a lot of short films stretching back to 1980. After this, he makes The Brown Bunny in 2003. Uh, and Buffalo 66 was also co-written by Alison Bagnall, who went on to write and direct The Dish and the Spoon, a film with Greta Gerwig in 2011. Uh, I've not seen that. I would like to check it out. If it's anything as, if anywhere near as good as Buffalo 66, I'd be very curious to see it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the film stars... 
like I said, Vincent Gallo as Billy Brown. Uh, some of his other roles uh, include Palookaville in 1995, Trouble Every Day in 2001, Tetro in 2009, and Essential Killing in 2010. Uh, Christina Ricci, uh, she plays Layla. Before this, she is in Adam's Family and Adam's Family Values from 1991 to 1993. Uh, Casper in 1995, The Ice Storm in 1997. The same year that she's in Buffalo 66, she's also in Pecker, Fear and Loving on Las Vegas. And then following that, she's in Sleep Sleepy Hollow in 1999, Prozac Nation, All Over the Guy in 2001. All Over the Guy, by the way, that's something we're going to be talking about later on in this miniseries for Lionsgate. Uh, she's also on Monster in 2003, and she's currently on Yellow Jackets, which she is phenomenal on. She's so good. She's so good at that show. I, I do too. <laughs> Especially since Elijah Wood and Lauren Ambrose are going to be on the next season that's, too. Oh, man. I'm just oh, like, that's such good casting. Oh. So much teenage nostalgia in just those two people alone, let alone the rest of the cast who's been on the first season. (laughs) Also featuring the film, uh, Ben Gazzara as Jimmy Brown. Uh, Prior to this, uh, he's in Husbands in uh, in 1970 and Killing of a Chinese Bookie in 1976. St. Jack in 1979, The Big Lebowski and Happiness in 1998. After this, something called Hysterical Blindness, which I'm not familiar with, and Dogville. That's a Miranere. Right? Ooh, okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was an HBO movie. I've seen it. It's uh, Uma Thurman and uh, uh, who else is on Yellow Dragons? What's uh, Julia I did Lewis. A yeah, Julia Lewis. <laughs> yes. yes, I remember you talking about this movie on that episode. Yes, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll have to see that. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's also in Dogville in 2003, which we'll be covering again for Lionsgate miniseries. Uh, and then we also have Angelica Houston as Jan Brown. Uh, before this, she's in The Witches uh, in 1990. Uh, she's in Adam's Family and Adam's Family Values with Christina Ricci. She's in Royal Tenenbaums mm. in 2001 and John Wick 3 in 2019. I am going to lay my cards on the table here. I have seen Adam's Family Values at least 10 times throughout my That's adolescence. Good. I didn't even think about how Angelica Houston was Christina Ricci's mom in that movie while watching this, which is insane. Yeah. I, it didn't even cross my mind. I, 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 once I, once you said that, I was just like, oh, duh. <laughs> like, but like, I couldn't believe I didn't even like think about that watching this movie. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, I, I always find that nice when the actors sort of reunite on these little projects. I mean, it's like, a testament to both of their performances and the film itself, but it, yeah, that's wild. <laughs> like, yeah. Didn't even cross my mind. Their natural chemistry makes even more sense. Oh, now. yeah. You mean the chemistry in which Angelica Houston barely looks at her throughout the entire movie? <laughs> so but warmly. Yeah. <laughs> and now on to trivia for the film. There's a lot here. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for the research. Uh, the house where Billy Brown's parents live in the film is actually the very same house where Vincent Gallo lived with his parents growing up. Uh of the one and a half million budget, twenty thousand dollars is spent on Angelica Houston's wig alone. That is a lot of money. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, Mickey Rourke was going through tough times indeed with both his career and his finances at the time the film was being made. According to an interview, Rourke stated that Gallo offered him a small part in the movie and paid him with a paper bag containing a hundred thousand dollars. My gosh, the paper bag—that's a perfect detail. That's, and also, like, that's like. I don't know the percentage, but that's like one fifteenth of your budget for less than a minute of screen time. <laughs> He's good in the movie, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm just imagining Bugs Bunny being the person he meets up with when it just has a dollar sign on it while he's just like hooking up. In the... <laughs> <laughs> like, 
That's that's incredible. Um, Christina Ricci choreographed her tap dance in the bowling alley scene. It's pretty good choreography. Uh, original cinematographer Dick Pope, who has shot a lot of Mike Lee movies and also The Way of the Gun, a previous almost major title, uh, he was fired during pre-production for opposing Vincent Gallo's decision to shoot on reversal film. Gallo intended to act as cinematographer himself, but the Bond company ensuring the film would not allow it, so Gallo then hired Lance Accord, who is at the time a non-union cinematographer who had never shot a feature. I think since then he's gone on to shoot a lot of Spike Jones movies. Uh, yeah, yeah, he did uh, Lost in Translation and uh, Marie Antoinette. Yeah, go. he's got a huge career. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, Christina Ricci and Lance Accord both had difficult working relationships with Vincent Gallo, resulting in Gallo publicly disparaging him after the film's release, calling Ricci a puppet and overweight and Accord a button pusher. Angelica Houston also did not get along with him, and Gallo claimed Houston caused the film to be turned down by the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, I'm sure. Sure. And I, I guess he won in the end because Brown Bunny ended up going to Cannes. To rapturous applause. Everyone loved it. Yes. And that's where Especially he ended Especially Roger Ebert. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where he did end up, I think, act, I was reading, he ended up acting as his own cinematographer on that, so he really was the whole uh, author of that one. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Uh, the song Billy's Father Sings to Layla, Foolish Russian, Where Angels Fear to Tread, was actually sung by Vincent Gallo's father, Vincent Gallo Sr., Pretty good song, I must say. Nice job on the, the vocals there. Um, Gallo decided to shoot on reverse stock, which is the equivalent of color transparency film, which is expensive both to buy and process, without even knowing if the stock was available in 35mm, or if any labs were capable of developing it. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Corrigan originally turned down the role of Goon, or Rocky, as he likes to be called, because he was uncomfortable with it. He later changed his mind and asked for the role back. Gallo had hired another actor to play the role, but fired him and rehired Corrigan. After filming, Corrigan was still uncomfortable with his performance and asked to be uncredited. <laughs> just so much rigor rigmarole to eventually at the end just be like, you know what, I, I, I'm still, I still don't like it, sorry. <laughs> of all the people in the movie, too, I mean, we'll talk about this, but like, he doesn't he doesn't come off that bad in this movie or anything. It's a good performance and yeah. his character is yeah. like you know, he's it's kind of a dillweed, but it's it's fine. He's a nice dillweed. He cares about his yeah. 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 What a dillweed. I love Kevin Corrigan though. It's always so fun. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. he's great. Yeah. yeah. Big fan. During an interview in twenty seventeen, when a reporter asked Christina Ricci if Vincent Gallo was difficult to work with on this film. She said that he insisted her mother, who would chaperone her, stay away during filming, and that he would regularly scream at her during the shoot. When the reporter asked her if she thought a situation like that, i.e. a very young woman working largely alone with someone who is notoriously creepy, would be allowed on sets these days, Richie replied, just because he's bad at hiding it doesn't mean other people aren't really good at hiding it. Everybody's creepy. He just happens to be really loud about it, and he's not even that creepy. He's just kind of a jerk. But he's not lascivious. So glowing praise. Uh, <laughs> Look, he's an quote, asshole. Honestly. But I mean, you know, it's not like he's the worst to ever live. But he's also not that good. It's like, thanks. I don't know. It is like weirdly somewhat complimentary at a certain point because she could have yep. very easily yeah. been like, "Oh, he's a waste of space." But she's like, ah, I, I mean, like. He's talented, but he fucking sucks. Like that's. What I, she I didn't even say he was talented. <laughs> I even. I, I also wonder because she was 
17 at the time? Like, if she was just like, how much will I say that will get me in trouble? Like, like how much uh, can I say without getting in trouble here? You know? Sure. That's well, this, this was 2017, so... Oh, this was oh, yeah, this 10 years later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, she had more of a, a yeah, she had more of a safety net at this point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This was uh Time Out London is what it looks like. Ah. Gotcha. And it's interesting that you mentioned her age at the time of making the movie because the next trivia thing is Ben Gazzara ad-lit the part where he shows his face between Christina Ricci's breasts at the dinner table. Uh you oh, can nice. very much sense her yeah. discomfort in this scene. Yep. I mean, it works yep. for the character, but it that's a little upsetting to know that uh, that that was an ad lib. Yeah. That is something you should definitely go over with your actors when you're making a movie. Um, yeah, uh, Gallo also then he Gallo had his own side of the story. Of course, he wrote in 2018. Christina Ricci was my friend during the filming of Buffalo '66, and working with her made sense and felt natural. Don't think she likes the finished film much. During the film's release, she didn't do much to support it. Instead, she pushed another film of hers called Opposite of Sex, which was released around the same time. No, Christina's strong support, things were much harder regarding the release of Buffalo 66, and it forced me to generate interest in the film on my own. I hold grudges sometimes, and I had that a little bit with Christina for reasons that I may have exaggerated. I insulted her jokingly one day to a friend, and a sneaky gossip writer overheard me. Christina and I have not spoken since. There are a lot of people I don't like, and I have no problem calling out Christina is not one of them. Jokingly calling somebody overweight and a puppet, I love doing that. Yeah. <laughs> also, I love that you, you, do, you don't do that to your friends. I do that. I call my coworkers that every day when I walk into work. Yeah, Jesus. I also love that, like, he's doing the Kevin Bacon thing where he says, like, our movie got overshadowed by, like, something else. Or he said, like, Stir of Echoes got overshadowed by Six Sense. It's like Buffalo Six Sense got overshadowed, by, overshadowed opposite by Opposite of Sex. <laughs> Just also, like a classic she's, the, she's like the headliner for the. I haven't seen opposite of this uh, opposite of sex, but it's she's fine. the headliner for it, right? Mm-hmm. She's on the poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard Lisa Kudrow was like really good in that movie. Yes, uh, and I think she got a Globe nomination too. No shit. Yeah. Is it as good as Lucky Numbers though? Ooh. Nothing can be as good as Lucky Numbers. <laughs> good question. Uh, put put them on a double bill. Uh. <laughs> what is this? Is this a shifter car? You think that's funny? I'm used to luxury cars. I drive cars that shift themselves. My cars shift themselves. I need you to come to my parents' house with me and pretend to be my wife. Did Billy ever tell you how we met? <laughs> Billy's the nicest husband in the whole world. Don't touch me. What do you me. mean, don't touch don't me? You're supposed to be me. husband and wife. No, really. I'm the luckiest girl. What did you say? One, two, three, get out of the car. I fell madly in love with him. Oh, they haven't won a championship since 1966. And I missed that game because that's the day I had Billy. Did you like Buffalo too? If you fail to convince the court, and very evil and very bad things are going to happen. Can you go to jail or something? Yeah, but he was innocent. Remember that guy, Wood? No good. I'd really like to find him. Are you still going to do that bad thing you said you were going to do? He missed that field goal on purpose. He got paid money, and he missed it on purpose. I thought somebody turned up the heat. Who's the girl? I'm his wife. Oh! 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 She's not my wife. What did I just tell you? I'm not looking. Just imagining. I picked her up hitchhiking. I'm a free guy, you know? That's not my style. These photos are us in love, spanning time. Just look like you like them. That's it. Can you do that? So now, look, I, I think this is a part of the show where we get into initial thoughts. Uh, Michael, I think as, as your guest, you should go first to talk about your initial <laughs> thoughts on Buffalo 66. Uh, please. 
Okay. Um. <clears throat> so I, I mean, like this is this is a love or hate it movie. I mean, I mean, it's fascinating looking back at the time, and um, we'll probably talk about it later. But Roger Ebert have a, had a very vocal beef with Vincent Gallo, but then you also had people like Jonathan Rosenbaum who gave it like a 0.5 out of five. Um, and a lot of prominent critics at the time. So it is, it is fascinating because it has become, you know, the, this poster child for a certain type of independent film. So, and the thing is that like, this was at Sundance and there is nothing about this movie that feels like Sundance. And that's what I'll say is, uh, that's kind of my opening statement is like, I think this movie is kind of brilliant. And I also hated almost every minute of it because (laughs) it is so obnoxious in, in every sense of the word from the characterization to the editing to the uh, like dismissal of grammar to just like, from everything, it just, it feels like a movie from someone who truly said, I am doing this in my own way. And so that's cool, but it's also, you know, uh, I'm not going to be formalist and say, uh, l- let's just say that Vincent Gallo's real life persona seems to sure as hell feed into Billy Brown mm-hmm. <laughs> in uh-huh. Buffalo 66. And I... I, I think that there are a lot of there are a lot of brilliant choices in here. I think there's some great performances. I think there is just consistently this is a unpredictable movie in a way that I can also say, oh, I see filmmakers who saw this and you know they were radicalized by it. Like, it's impossible to not see something like the Safties in this. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... Um, 100%. Yeah. Like, and I, I guess that's the... That, that's the one I'll, I'll mention, but... Um, I did... So it's... Oh, sorry. No, please. Go ahead. I, I checked my letterbox ratings and I saw that Sean Baker logged this film and said, I revisit this classic often. And then I was like, oh, of course, you made Red Rocket. Which exactly. has the same type of relationship between its central characters. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like, like maybe they're not outright fucking like they are in Red Rocket, but it is absolutely the same type of, I'm going to take this underage girl under my wing, and they're, instead of them being appalled, they're going to be into it. You know, like... Yeah, I, I mean, it's... Yeah, just in every sense, this is... It's like a lovers on the run. Like, by all accounts, it should be the most generic imaginable thing. And it's just not. But wow, it is incredibly obnoxious. But I know ultimately I'm going to sound like I really like this movie. But there were a lot of times where I was like, fuck you. <laughs> I remember you text. Well, you texted me while you were watching it. Your points today. And you were like, this is brilliant. I hate it. <laughs> like... <laughs> 
you gotta hand it to Gallo for me. It's like it's like you have to hand it to him. Like it's, I mean, I wrote I wrote my notes. Damn it, even the songs are good. Like I was like, it says like, like Gallo. I'm like I like the music. Like that's the thing. It's that's so good. and and I know I'm roasting you a bit, Michael, but I'm also in a similar boat. Not to play my own hand, but yeah. No, sure. I uh, we'll talk way more about this, but I just think. Uh, yeah, this was just like, by the end of it, I was like, oh man, I remember when independent film, like, it meant something, <laughs> like, not oh, yeah. to be that person, yeah. but it's, and, and we'll get into it, but this and Jesus's son, I think are two examples where I was just like, oh man, remember when independent film felt truly It, it had an identity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so that's what I can't say about this. I, I'm going to have a lot of things to say have about how annoying Vincent Gallo's character in the filmmaking is in here, but there's nothing generic about this. No. Yeah. That's what I will say. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kevin, why don't you go next? I know, I know you also have a lot of strong feelings about this movie too. Uh, oh yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I love this movie so much. And this rewatch made me love it even more. Um, the cinematography of it is some of my all-time favorite. I love the way this movie looks. And just so many, just, there's there's a lot of sh- showy cinematography in it, but the, there's just also just very basic shot setup that with the lighting, it makes it just, like, astounding. Like, when... Zara is singing and like the lights dim down and there's a red light on give me all of that shit oh my god oh that's so good uh, you know it's a it's a very complicated movie and but both within the story and everything outside the film um uh, and it's it's really weird because like the protagonist is just like truly a loser but as the film progresses you start to notice this is an all an act and like Ricci notices it almost immediately like it, like she starts smiling when he can't figure out how to drive a manual and it's just like she can even <laughs> already see through this guy yeah so that's so all of his anger and whatnot that comes out i i never feel it as like actual anger it's more times than not it's fucking hilarious because it's just like it's just like i don't drive these type of cars i drive luxury cars you know mercedes benz ever heard of that the it's hands just, it's always fucking hilarious hands. Yeah. yeah it's fucking hilarious um then it becomes like because like for 90 percent of it you're just like god this guy's just insufferable and the other 10 percent, you're just like god i feel really bad for him and then it'll go right back to the 90 percent. like he's basically just stuck as a kid like in his bowling mm-hmm. locker room there's an article about him winning a tournament and the picture is him as a boy the only pictures his parents have of him as a boy and it's a picture that just from reminds billy that his parents are terrible and his dad murdered his dog um richie even says he looks like a little boy in the bathtub and he gets in the fetal position in bed with her and the only girl he's pretty much ever talked to is a girl in third grade that he's fixated about for like 20 years um even the gun he has looks like a fucking toy gun like he's just he's a little boy um and yeah like i was saying this movie's fucking hilarious and all the supporting characters are just so damn good like um Houston is just so good at not paying attention to anything. <laughs> She's so good. <laughs> like watching watching a game from like twenty years ago, like that's that's insane. Like, um, anyways, um, because we never learn about Richie's background, we have to learn 
about her from how she reacts to Gallo, and that could that could toe the line. And it does go through here, and it also doesn't of like the she's the pure woman that's gonna save them and blah blah blah. But it's kind of the thing of like, is it Stockholm syndrome or is she just as damaged as him? Maybe both. Is she just a manic pixie dream girl? Maybe all three. And I can totally get the manic pixie dream girl complaints on this, but I also think this film is actively making fun of Billy for the way he is and isn't being super serious all the time of how fucked up he is and he just needs someone to save him. And it's a lot more than that, but I totally understand not vibing with it. But I, it's one hundred percent my vibe. I love it so much. Um, this the fucking strip club scene set to heart of the sunshine, heart of the sunrise is just just fucking gangbusters oh it's so good and that trailer set to it is just like it, it i mean before i even saw the movie mm-hmm. i watched that trailer and i was just like this like looks it's just like so striking how it's like all just like still oh, frames so basically good. yeah it's set yeah. to that song yeah. yeah yeah that was the first time i can't i was talking in the group chat i was just like i remember watching a vhs and that trailer showed up and i had to have been like seven or eight and i was just like Whatever this is, uh, I'm going to have to wait a while to, but it looks interesting, <laughs> but I know I'm too young for this, whatever the fuck it is. Um, I wish I knew what the fucking VHS was, but yeah, I always remember that trailer and yeah, it still rules. Okay. But uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's initial thoughts. I, I fucking love it. Love it so much. When did uh, you first see it? Kevin, I'm just, I'm curious. Uh, I'm going to say like six, seven years ago. Um, when I was at OU, I screened it for uh, a film series I did. And then I think right around that time, I was like, oh, let me watch Brown Bunny. Uh, let me see what that's about. It's the most boring movie I've ever seen. But, um, so this is my third time watching it, I think. And yeah, I've loved it more and more every single time. How did OU, that, that screening, how did, how did they react to it? Oh, they loved it. Um, that was also the same series where I showed house and I showed possibly in Michigan beforehand. So I was, oh, I was nice. just going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I also showed gummo that film series. So hell yeah. Okay. What was the theme of the series? Really? Nice. really I'm oh, it that. was, it was just every Thursday they were just like, yeah, we have a room and you can just show whatever. So I just showed whatever. <laughs> that rolls. So cool. Yeah. They were like, we have a popcorn machine. You can make popcorn too. And I was just like, awesome. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. You're set. Yeah. But, uh, Bryden, uh, this is your first time. I think it's everybody's first time besides me, right? Yes. For me, yeah. It was my first okay. time. Yep. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this, this really knocked me on my ass. I, I, I <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's wild. I mean, especially because, like, Gallo, it's funny. I had only seen him, in, like, in a couple of movies, like the Claire Denis films, and I guess he's technically credited in Goodfellas. I could not find him in that movie, but like, yeah, he's not really an actor, but like, I was more familiar with his like public persona of him just being kind of an, an insufferable asshole. Uh, it's so, like, it's kind of the thing where you go and like, maybe a little bit guarded, but like, right, right from the start. I mean, yeah, this movie, like, it's funny if you read like the, the, the premise of this movie, it's like, you know, a guy gets out of prison and he like forces a girl to pretend to be his wife. And you look at the tagline too, where it's like, he just got out of prison. Now he's going back. Uh, to prison with his parents or something like that like that's his own kind of prison and it's like just sounds like so fucking hacky and everything but then like that's right... a tagline for meet the parents exactly like, yeah <laughs> but like what's what's so striking right from the start of the movie is like how like just achingly sad this movie is where like it is like you know like this sort of tinny vocals on like the song that like gallo records where it's like you know he's like still that little boy and everything it's like it's like holding on the shot of like him as a kid like in probably like one of his few moments of happiness is like a kid with his dog bingo and then um 
you know, like stuck in it, stuck in a photo and everything. And it's, it's interesting too, like how the movie is like about like sort of being stuck in time and everything. And like, you know, like wanting to the, sort of the futility of trying to like recreate the past or change the past or anything. I mean, it's, you know, it's telling that like, you know, Angelica Houston's character is like trying to rewind like the, the, the football game that she knows the outcome of every time. And she still gets mad about the outcome every time or ever, even though she knows she can't change it. Um, and it really takes like I, I but like it also like it, it, the movie is undermining Billy for how like silly he is like a lot of the time. I mean, Kevin, you talk about like how like the the things he says are really funny, but it's also funny how like his his impatience like it will just be like the near he will view every target of annoyance as of equal importance. Where he's like Sandy Christina Ricci is like fuck you and your fucking hot chocolate and everything as if like they're the two <laughs> things that are of equal annoyance. Um, uh-huh. But, like, it also, I mean, the movie is so striking, I think, with, like, the the opening where he goes out, he gets out of prison, and, like, you see, like, just, like, how, like, the, the trauma, I, mean, I don't know, like, the movie doesn't really get into specifics about, like, his prison experiences, but just, like, the, the, the way that, like, all these little square images of his time in prison, uh, mm-hmm. of him, like, crying in the shower, and all, like, the, the guard who was just, like, watching him sternly and everything, it all just, like, starts to, like, swallow up the frame and everything, and how, like, he just, like, this guy's just, like, constantly living with, like, all these messed up feelings like in his life and everything i find that really quite powerful how like it's always just like swallowing his life and drowning out everything preventing him from any kind of happiness and then the way at the end of the movie where that technique sort of comes back and reverses itself where it's like you know like sort of the square image and then it shrinks and he's able to be back in sort of like the full frame without all that i find that really there is like a weird kind of amount of hopefulness in the movie even as it is like constantly like taking you into just like his self-loathing um and yeah, like you said, Kevin, the, the lighting in this movie is so striking. I mean, like the way, like the moments of, you know, just sort of like fantastical, like scenes where like it is like characters like taking the spotlight almost and like having like their own sort of performances where they are able to, you know, have their own moments of stardom. I mean, Michael, in your letterbox review, you, you you had the, the phrase king for a frame, which is, I, I think, like a perfect way to describe it. Like everyone has like their own moment where they want to like have like just like the one moment of past that they can re- recreate where there's the dad recreating this moment as like a singer and, you know, Billy wants to be a bowling champion and then Christy Ritchie, she's aspiring to be a dancer and it's like, it's all just like a fleeting escape and there's like just something so tragic about that, how like it's like they have their one moment of happiness that they that they can't make last and yeah, all the performances are just like so everyone just, you could easily imagine these characters descending into cartoon, you know, stereotypes and anything, especially like the, the sort of like henpecking mom and like the dad who's just sort of like gruff and doesn't really talk a whole lot but like all of it feels like so lived in and you know, like, all, even, like, characters will, like, pop up just for, like, one scene, you know, like, young Michael Vincent as, like, sort of, like, the gruff-voiced bowling alley employee who, like, just, like, you immediately get, like, a sense of, like, the, the warmth of that relationship, and, like, it treats it as so genuine, and it's, I don't know, I, I this movie is just, like, it, it, it's such a, Michael, you talk about how this movie is obnoxious, and I can see how, like, it could be the bad kind of obnoxious, where it's, like, too, it, 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 it could be, like, either too sickly sweet or too, like, nasty to even be enjoyable, and how it just, like, manages to walk that line i mean yeah you got it like hannah Gallo for like pulling it off and like his his and you know maybe it's his, his co-writing partner too i mean I, i'd like to give credit to her too you know for you know whatever contribution she might have brought but like yeah it is just like kind of a kind of uh incredible that this movie exists in the way that it does and pulls it off so well um I'll stop my thoughts there because I, I want to hear what charlie has to say about the movie which and what his first impressions were of this movie uh i'm basically gonna mirror a bit of what everybody said here. <laughs> um, I've heard, so yeah, I had heard about how great this movie was from multiple people throughout several years. Um, 
and I still hadn't seen it. And by the time I found out that Vincent Gallo is basically an fucking edgelord at this point. I mean, just going out and saying in interviews, oh, giving women the right to vote was a mistake. Like, I was just like, I don't want to fucking engage with this shit. Like, I don't, you know, and I, I, it really turned me off. And then when we were assigned to do this on the pod, I was like, okay, this is going to challenge you. And <laughs> that's what art does. And uh, like Michael, I was also went into it being like, I'm going to be resistant to this, which is a bias I don't like to admit. But <laughs> I really, because again, there's that whole cliche of like, you should go into everything with an open mind. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes, especially in the year 2022, you can't go into a film with a completely open mind if you've read certain things about how the filmmaker, star, writer, director is a Trump supporter and uh, just saying horribly nasty things. Um, and... I found this utterly engrossing <laughs> and I, I, I immediately like my, I had my guard up and I hate to admit that, but I was just like, fuck, I, I was talking to about it with people at work today. Cause I was just like, I just watched this for the first time. And I think Vincent Gallo is such a piece of shit, but like this movie's really good. Right. And he's like, no, they're like, Oh no, no, it's great. Like, <laughs> like it's so good. And, um, I, 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 it, it, it did, um, I've been wrestling with this movie and how much I liked it for the past uh, couple days. I even went and took the plunge into the brown bunny because these are the only two major, well, I shouldn't say major, but the two films that got festival uh, uh, plays and... Um, there's only two of his movies that have actually been released. Yeah, released. Yeah, promises because promises written in water played at Venice and Tiff, and then he yeah. just sort of like withheld it and like refuses to release it. Yeah, um, and even yeah. as a kid, I heard about the controversy surrounding the Brown Bunny and about how Roger Ebert was like, "This is the worst movie that ever played in the history of the Cannes Film Festival." Zero stars, and then he recut it, gave it three stars. Um, and Brown Bunny is also completely different aesthetically in regards to this. Um, and it also, for obvious reasons, made me deeply uncomfortable and, uh, conflicted, especially in regards to the infamous scene with Chloe Sevigny. And at the same time, I think there's an honesty here that is undeniably powerful in both of these films for different reasons, just about, like, we've talked about, you know, childhood trauma with this film, and I think in the brown bunny especially damaged male psyche and masculinity in a way where he might be a horrible person in real life but i mean sometimes we watch movies for windows into perspectives that are not our own and sometimes i think it's important to get out of your bubble and in my case i feel like i have a very privileged bubble in this uh in this type of circumstance. And I can't deny that mirroring what everybody said in regards to Buffalo 66 specifically, I found this movie to be uh, very funny, uh, very nakedly vulnerable <laughs> in shocking ways. And, uh, and on top of that, very visually uh, arresting in other ways. Like, I mean, I was kind of stunned by how many types of innovative ways were used to fill the frame. I mean, there, we'll talk about it later, but there's a, a, a you know, 
we'll get into it, I'm sure, but there, you know, there's at one point there's a license plate that has like, you know, three numbers like a normal license plate and then Ozu next to it. And then I was just like, that that can't be a coincidence, right? And then we get into <laughs> the scenes where he takes Christina Ricci home to his family and they're framed like, you know, Ozu films that are clearly inspired by Ozu films. Um, and I couldn't help in regards to what you were saying, Michael, about this is the way independent films used to be and how this premiered at Sundance. I apologize in advance, Brian, I know you like this movie, but I couldn't help but think about how I saw Cha-Cha Real Smooth recently, which was bought out for $15 million at Sundance this year. And Cooper Rafe is the writer and director and star of that. And it's a film in which he has, in my opinion, I'm just saying this is completely from my perspective, uh, no interest in how to frame a uh, compelling shot or uh, tell a story about himself that is in any way harsh on himself and is essentially a film in which he gets everybody, whether it's his character or himself. And I think there's uh, barely a filter there about how much everybody loves him. And there is something striking in how Vincent Gallo in this film and in The Brown Bunny has made films about horrible assholes, of which I think he probably is one, and full of self-loathing. And they are both entirely narcissistic. They're both entirely... uh, self-centered in certain ways but i mean it's a singular vision like i i i can't think of i can think of obviously there are tons of influences but i can't think of another movie that looks like this especially from 1998 really no no and also you were bringing up cooper rafe because he also is selling his sperm for a million dollars they could be acting in daily wire movies 20 years from now (laughs) but it is like i mean that's that's what like 20 four years ago this movie came out and now these types of i'm sorry milk toasts sanitized like pat myself on the back i'm sorry it's it's, it's t- shocking that i we need to be mean for a second we, we can also say that maybe he's not great at framing marketing considering his last movie was called shithouse and this one is called Cha Cha Real Smooth. Even people who like those movies uh, have like said, like he's not so good at titles. This maybe he should hand it over to someone else. No, I know. I just we we couldn't. Yeah, let this I know on for sad. sure. Yeah, yeah. I've, have you heard what his next movie is called? It's called uh, Wobble with It. In the parentheses, Wobble with It. Yeah, sorry. I, I mean, when I recommended Shithouse to my parents, like uh, I said, like now I'm gonna recommend a movie. I think you'll like it, but you're gonna make a face when I say the title, and they're like, Oh, what's it gonna be? And I'm like, Shithouse is what it's called. And then my mom made a face. And I'm like, See what I. Tell it's like yeah and 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 to be entirely fair it's not like something i thought of the entire time where i was comparing this to cha-cha real smoother i haven't seen shit house but i couldn't even just on its own terms i was just like god damn it i can't deny the artistry here and like michael i was like i fucking hate this guy (laughs) but uh, but at the same time every single turn this film takes is not one i was expecting both in terms of how it, you know, um, just in terms of how it tells its story visually and also in terms of just uh, plot beats. Like, just every single time, I I was kind of just, Brian, and you said thrown on your ass. I mean, I, I'll double that. Like, it, it really took me for a loop. And I could not believe how... Uh, how much I actually enjoyed this, and it, it, it and I'm I'm still 
kind of, yeah, dealing with that. He kind of is now in line with someone like David Mamet, where I'm like, you're a piece of shit, but God damn it, you're a fucking artist. And I can't deny that, mm. <laughs> if that makes any sense. But Mamet has, he has no, none of the finesse behind the camera. I, it's a different, it's a different type of, it's yeah. a different type of finesse, but it, uh, Spartan, I think is when it, it took him several films, but I think Spartan, he has a real eye behind the, a, a, a real feel for how to, uh, uh, how to engross the viewer with certain compositions in ways that I I think are very idiosyncratic in the ways that this film, like, it, again, yeah, just like in an age where in 2020, you know, we're in 2022 right now where so many films feel the same. I can't think of another film that feels exactly like this one. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting you mentioned Cooper Rafe because I think something that I've, the exact thing I realized, the the thing that I've started to get clarity about is the thing that maybe I'm wrestling about. So I've obviously done really well (laughs) wrestling with this. I think Cooper Rafe or, you know, um, someone like, oh God, uh, listen up, Philip. Alex Ross Perry. Perry. Who I like. I like Alex Ross Perry, actually. I, I do... I, I do to an extent as well, but I think there's something very interesting about this film's relationship to self-indulgence. Like I would personally say that a good amount of these like, you know, defiantly independent movies often set in New York, they feel masturbatory mm-hmm. quite a bit. And this this somehow doesn't despite having a kitchen sink approach to filmmaking like the thing about mammoth is um you know i do quite like spartan and i like a lot of kind of script reveals and rug pulls it does but it's still not the type of film where i was like uh you know, if I was slouching or something that I would stand up straight immediately and be like, oh, you just did a little pan. Like, I've just like one little touch that came to mind is the I think it's Denny's. It's a diner. They go. Yeah, it's to. Denny's. It's Denny's. Yeah. And so there's an attendant who takes them to this booth and then it just just the smallest pan and the waitress is right there. Yeah, And it's just like, it, it's so many things that are, the filmmaking is so fluid and lucid, even as what you're watching, it's just, it's a force of nature. Like mm-hmm. he's a, he's a, a dormant volcano feels too nice because that suggests that he's ever <laughs> dormant. <laughs> like he's just a, a repeatedly, He's like a throbbing boil. (laughs) Like, like I, I I was going to make a a joke actually in the review that, uh, Bryden mentioned was like, you know, as on the nose as it is, like he's a gutter ball of a human being. (laughs) Oh my God. Like he's someone who, whatever trajectory they wanted, you know, they still can't find that groove. Like, I, I think there's something super 
that uh, that bowling scene is so important to me, I mm-hmm. think, for understanding him as a person. Um, That's turns, all he has in life. Yes. That's mm-hmm. it. And it's it's not only like that as like a concrete thing that he has, but it is here is something where he is in the pocket, <laughs> where he is, you know, fully in a place and where he feels truly at home for a moment until he's not. And he's just like thrown back into the world. And so I think that's what's so interesting to me about how this is self-indulgent is because on some level, some of the characterization decisions, they do sometimes just feel like they are trying to be the opposite of what you expect to too much in terms of alternating between this ability to be intimate and then this ability to be like just incredibly vicious. And at some point, I didn't necessarily lose empathy for him, but I was like, how many more times can Christina Ricci, you know, Layla massage his ego here? And it is like, and she's doing something really interesting here. Mm-hmm. And we see her enter her own dream worlds. I mean, I mean, uh, Brian already mentioned in the trivia, the tap dance. The tap dancing sequence is, it's like a goddamn near transcendent. Yes. Like it's just, it's the type of thing, um, you know, I guess I guess it's very Lynchian on, on some level. Mm-hmm. You know, it could remind you of Silencio and, uh, Mulholland Drive or uh, Blue Velvet. Like, it is that type of, you know, impromptu karaoke thing where you just feel fully in the moment. Um, so I think that's what's so interesting to me is, on some level, this is probably a lot who Vincent Callow actually is. <laughs> on some level... Even though he, is... ha- he has said, he's like, no, obviously that's not me. And I'm like, is it? No. It's like he Vincent... said he said he said at the end him and the donut shop he says that's me on a good day and I was like yep okay yeah and he's Vincent Gallo in real life is like his character in this movie if he didn't have the come to Jesus moment at the end it's like it's like no 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 it's it's it, I, everyone else is wrong and I'm right that's that's how it is yeah Vincent Gallo probably like harasses Kevin Corrigan like just like he does in this movie yeah, I mean... just calls him up he's just like hey hey, hey fucking hey guy from no, grounded for life. <laughs> both both of his films in different ways feel like endurance tests too because like i mean his character in this is just so abrasive and um, and hostile and just self-centered and it dares you to stick with them it dares you to stick with him for the longest yeah. time and i think what is i agree with you kevin i thought a lot about i wrestled with the christina ricci character in that yeah and and what you said too michael of how many times, how patient can she really be with this guy? I mean, is it It's because just... she sees right through his bullshit. Yeah, but then I also came around to, she's stronger than I would be in this situation because she sees right through his bullshit and is able to give him the verbal cues to get him to stick around. But I also feel like she's bored with her own life in a way that's like, this is more interesting. And I love that there's no scene where she talks about her backstory or what's going on with her, which I know a lot of people can, you know, list as a criticism to not fleshing her out. I wrestled with this back and forth and still have weird feelings I'm, you know, going back and forth about with this because she is in one way 
that ideal dream girl. And at the same time, never, ever uh, behaves in a way that you would expect a normal stock movie character to behave. And um, it's, it's also interesting in that the brown bunny, I mean, and a lot of people have written about this for 70 minutes of the brown bunny. You are just stuck with him in that fucking car and he picks up women and they're just like, uh, what's your deal? Like, and then he's usually kind of awful to them. And then it, the the real movie doesn't really come in, in until the last 20 minutes. I feel like Vincent Love Gallo... Love watching a movie where it starts at the end. That's cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and again, I'm still wrestling with all of these feelings towards both movies, but I, I can't deny that, like, I think... <laughs> it's, it's funny how, like, it, 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 in the back of my head, I was like, of course he loves Trump because he is a weird version where he lays himself out bare for everyone to see. And then when people are like, what an asshole, he just lashes out and does the exact same things that like Trump will say, except that yeah. Trump's never let his guard down, whereas Vincent Gallup does. And I feel like a lot of this is, you know, I does it. Do we know if he had a fucked up childhood? Because this feels like it comes from a really He's, personal place. Yeah. From that uh that uh 2018 uh, essay or whatever diary entry whatever it was he said the only thing that was real about Buffalo 66 was that's exactly what my parents were like yeah like, I mean so, it, it, it not feels so I said that they wish he wasn't born like that kind of thing like yeah oh, shit. that, that oh, is, I'm sure. which yeah. is also Jeez. like gasp worthy and also I mean it's so darkly funny but that's that's the thing is like she names him after his her favorite football team like. <laughs> I, and yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so funny when wow. when uh, she says like, "Oh, I yeah. love Billy Brown." It's like, which one? And then like she says like, "Your son." It's like, and then like he just sort of like throws oh, up his hands. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I think he's the most handsome man in the world. Who is your son? Really? Yeah. And then he's, he's deli very deliberately framed off to the side, but he's basically shut out of his own family dinner. Yeah, it's yeah, so perfect. Anyway, oh no, it, it 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 basically yeah, just it feels so authentic, even in the broader, darkly comic scenes that could yeah. be criticized. It feels like it comes from a place of real vulnerability and real pain. And if you don't want to empathize with this guy, I don't blame you. I don't blame. I'm not saying everyone go run out and watch Vincent Gallo movies because it's a fucking it's a it's an endurance test, as I mentioned, in certain ways. And like, you know, but I'm also very glad that we got to cover it on this show because it did force me to get out of my comfort zone and wrestle with um, a character and a persona that I don't always like to be around uh, in real life with an artist that I don't always want to uh, uh, uh dive into like again like i don't know if I, I don't know how long it would have taken me to see this movie if we didn't have to cover it for the show but i'm so glad we did because this is kind of why movies like this are important you need to get out of your comfort zone and out of your bubble a little bit and especially after i mean the pandemic where i've just wanted nothing but like junk food for so long like this actually did provide me with a big challenge personally and uh, in, in terms of like, just, I feel like I'm going in circles at this point, but yeah, it, it, I, I, I am, I'm glad this movie pushed me to wrestle with certain things because it's so rare that movies actually force you to do that these days. 
uh, I don't know. I'm feeling like I'm such a sappy cliche right now. No. Also, my dogs are barking in the background, so I apologize about that. <laughs> I, I feel like the really the really hard thing here is I'm I'm trying so hard to get away from its persona. And yeah. when you zoom uh-huh. and but you and when you magnify I, when you magnify the filmmaking too, like if you want to even just talk about like Manic Pixie Dream Girl which, like, you know, <laughs> existed because of things that followed this. Yeah. Like, Nathan Raven Sundance. coined yeah. that of after Elizabethtown, right? Yeah. I'm sorry yes. to interrupt you. Exactly. Uh, was it Elizabethtown? I think yes. it was Elizabethtown. It was the, uh, that when he was writing about his uh, My World of Flops. That was the My comment. World of yeah. Flops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, uh, anyway, like, even, um, it, it's reductive, but I think on some level, even that archetype is, like, interesting to talk about in relation with this movie. So, like, you know, for every time you're like, oh, this is gratuitous, then you're like, okay, but there's a counter here completely. Like you think about, for instance, okay, so Ricci, they're playing at certain times with like almost this Lolita persona. They're playing with this hypersexualized thing, but we never see her, you know, there's no like glamour shots of her nude. Mm-hmm. The 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 bathtub scene is so notable for the fact that he's in the fetal position and she's like, I'm cold. And then it's edited as, you know, just kind of a, uh, like an episodic sight gag where then she's in the water <laughs> after she yeah. said she wasn't going to be. But like, even then the bed scene, I mean, it's, when you look at those scenes, it's I, on some level, it is really funny. And I think this is kind of related to what you were saying, Kevin, in the sense that like, it, it's not only that she sees through his bullshit, but it's like every time that she tries to convince him that he's not a piece of shit, he's like, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> like it's yeah. like, and, and it's like, the funny thing is, is when she's describing the CIA thing, like so good. she's giving, she's giving like a world class performance <laughs> on some level, and it's like that is. I, I think that's what is so weird about this. Is I think this is kind of my last thought. Is like I feel like we've seen a lot of genre riffs that were very aware. This is a riff. Here are, you know, even if there's an Ozu license plate in this, I don't feel like it's, you know, it's not a pastiche. It's not Lynch. It's not Tarantino. Like all, despite all of those things looming large, it's, it's not that. Like it's closer to like Nicholas Ray and, um, like they live by night was something I was thinking about. Oh, that's a good during it. Yeah. Um, and I just think that that is what is is so weird to wrestle with when you when you magnify this because you have something that is so overwhelmingly controlled, like just suffocatingly meticulous. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're aware of it, and it's not that's not a bad thing, but this movie's written, produced, directed, edited, scored. scored. Is, is that it? I, I think there's uh, one. I is think there one more? The editor is Curtis Clayton. Is, is their name? Oh, shit. Uh, he, I'm yeah. sorry. No, it's fine. And he and he also, you know, it's coming from him. So take it with a grain of salt. And he was just like, fucking Lance Accord didn't do anything. I fucking yeah, I called did him all. He had no pusher. ideas. Yeah. 
But like, yeah. if you've seen Lance Accord's other movies, you're like, yeah, I can believe that that guy shot it because he's a good DP. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a great, yeah. I'm no, sure. I mean, I'm sure he had a lot of ideas for the shots or not, but it's not like Lance Accord was a button pusher. Yeah, yeah. Like, not even bringing in anything with that persona. Just the fact that he is that person objectively. He is that person who is a thousand percent involved with this movie, and that. That is what I struggle with without even getting into that persona. This idea that it is supposed to be a takedown of this narcissist, that it is supposed to be incredibly self-aware. But then the filmmaking on a, in a certain sense, you know, uh, has, it, has its cake and eats it. I, I guess I haven't said this, but I guess I found the ending of this very unconvincing. Am I alone in that? Um... <laughs> we kind of did that in Snake Charlie. Oh, <laughs> uh, I will say I bought what happens right before it. <laughs> I, I actually bought it where I was like, and then it actually took me aback that it didn't commit to what I found to be a predictable ending. And then I also have a lot of feelings about the ending, which we can get into, that I don't know if I buy it either, but... I'm glad it went that direction as opposed to the direction that it initially starts to go down. If yeah. that makes any sense. I will also say, I think I can take the ending too, because it's like, even though he has like a moment where he decides to not go down the path that he's been hurtling towards, he still is retaining some of his self. Like he still says to uh, Rocky, he says like, if you touch myself, I'm going to karate chop you in the head or whatever. It's like, yeah. okay, so he's still that guy who's just like super aggro all the time or whatever. And, you know, like, the, the coffee shop scene, like, he is, like, super, I mean, he's he's nice, but it's, like, a super, like, aggressive niceness or anything. Yeah. And it's, like, where it's, like, it, like it's people don't up. necessarily know how to take it and everything. And, like, he's, like, saying to the guy, he's, like, here, you get a, you get a cookie. But it's only for your girlfriend, not for you, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, like, uh -huh. so, and. But then it's, it, it also seems like in that scene, he's going to, like, stiff the guy, too. Like, once yeah. he said $4, I'm, like. Please have four dollars. Just, just give this guy fucking four dollars. I think that's, I think that's what made the ending work for me. Is that he has an epiphany and not a complete transformation. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, before we get into the plot, I there was a review that I read that said, "Say what you will about Vincent Gallo, but goddamn, he's good at bullying." <laughs> I was like, yeah, dude, he really is. Yeah. But just, I loved when Ricci just gets like, th is it three strikes or two strikes in a row? And he's like, but, oh, of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> like after he loses his mojo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, let's get into the plot. Having just served five years in prison, Billy Brown, played by Vincent Gallo, returns home to Buffalo, New York, and is prepared to meet with his parents who don't know he's been in prison. He kidnaps Layla, played by Ricci, a tap dancer, and forces her to pretend to be his wife in front of his parents. He gives her the name Wendy Balson. The funny thing about this is that um, I feel like, it, like since we don't have any backstory, whatnot, I thought it was very serious how it feels like she kind of like was just like, let me just go to a let me just go to a tap dancing class today because like everybody is like in their tap dancing uniforms or whatnot, and she. And they all look really confident. She's like looking at them, like trying to catch up with them and whatnot. Not saying that she's not a tap dancer, because obviously is in the later scene. But I think that feeds into hers, so that she's also lost. That she maybe just picked up today. It was like, I'm going to go to a class. I don't know what they wear or anything like that. Um, 
When they meet with Billy's parents, Big Azaro and Angelica Houston, Layla sees that the relationship between them is very dysfunctional and sees Billy's own mother forgetting that he has a chocolate allergy and that his father behaves inappropriately towards her. She finds out Billy's mother has never missed a Buffalo's game except in 1966 on the day that Billy was born. In a flashback, it is revealed that Billy once placed a reckless $10,000 bet on the Bills to win the Super Bowl 25 when they lost the bookie played by Mickey Rourke, forced Billy to clear his death by confessing to a crime he didn't commit, resulting in his time served in prison now billy seeks revenge on scott wood the kicker who lost the game that entire flashback where kevin corgan comes in and whatnot and then it's just like and then mickey Rourke's just like if you ever have this chance again don't bet on the bills <laughs> it's pretty good yeah and Rourke too when he says like you know oh uh, when you know i want to do evil you know i just want to throw up and he just sort of like splays out his hands like that i mean it's just like work so is like so good, good with the gestures yeah. and everything it's yeah, and I also love oh man, the other details, like when Scott Wood, when you actually get to meet him a little bit, first you meet him in like the, the voicemail where he says like, hey, it's like Scott Wood, sorry I, missed, sorry I missed that field goal. I know you're all really mad at me, but you can come to my strip club or whatever. Like, it's just like uh-huh. the, the suggestion of this guy is like just must be fucking miserable like half the time in his life because just everyone hates him for this one mistake he made. It's so good. Um, yeah. 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 Um. Or also, he's just literally just like, I'm going to use the, uh, my fame is just that I suck, and I'm just going to lean into it. It's just like, I got a strip club because of it. Solid gold. Which, yeah, that's the most perfect fake strip club name. Uh, yes. As they live his... Yeah, what was that? I forget who was saying it, but it was just like very, with the plot um, summary and whatnot, it's just like, oh, you think the entire movie is going to take place at his parents' house? They like leave his parents' house like 40 minutes in. So, even that is very unconventional, but uh, as they leave his parents' house, Billy scolds Layla for telling an obvious lie to his father about how he's in the CIA <laughs> and then decide to go bowling. Here, Billy shows off his expertise at the sport, and Layla gives a tap dance routine to King Crimson's Moonchild. The two use a photo booth to take pictures, quote, spanning time, which this entire scene is fucking hilarious. We're a couple spanning time. No. Okay? <laughs> Do you think that's like a malapropism? Like, he means he thinks that's like the same as spending time or spanning time? I mean, like, that's. I, that's what i was thinking. i don't know because I, I don't know i have like some i know some people who like sometimes they'll like say things i'm like you're not pronouncing that correctly like there's like a person who like said like oh it's a splice of life film and i like i eventually had to say to them i think like it's slice of life not splice <laughs> so like i've, I've never seen this spanning time splice. spending time it's like he heard it once and like <laughs> misheard it and it's like but yeah uh-huh. oh i love that idea yeah <laughs> yeah i i can totally see that i just i realized the one thing i wanted to say is I think it's so great. We already mentioned that Jan Michael Vinson is wonderful as this bowling owner. Such or a, a weird manager. relationship. But a relationship that in like a minute tells you like, oh, this is one of the people he's closest to in his whole life. And this guy knows nothing about him mm-hmm. because uh-huh. he like, he, she's originally like, oh, I'm, I'm his wife. And then he's like, oh, no, I just picked her up hitchhiking. You know, I'll I'll throw her away as in like and that to me suggests so much about that. He's probably just had all of these dumb stories about hookups and everything to this bowling alley to try to. That guy buys yourself up. Yes, for sure. Him and Goon are the people that he can uh, spin his spin his bullshit and they'll believe him. And it's like we're not even by it, but just like. 
go they, they don't know anything yeah. else yeah. on a certain level. Or, like, it's an arrangement. I mean, like, you know, the way that, like, you know, Gallo or Billy is telling, like, Layla that, like, he's sort of treating her, like, doesn't he, like, at one point say, like, you're an actress and everything, like, give, like, the best performance? Like, and then, like, you know, yeah. it's almost like when he's, like, talking to, you know, Michael Vincent, he says, like, you're my friend, right? He keeps, like, he always has, like, a tendency to repeat things yeah. very consistently. It's like he's giving kind of directions and it's like, this guy is, like, on the same wavelength with him as, like, this is the arrangement that we'll have and it's, like, totally you know, mm. we'll, we'll keep it like that. Um, yeah. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, after Bully, Billy and Le- Le- Layla visit a diner where Billy encounters the real Wendy Balsam, placed by Roseanne Arquette, a girl he used to have a crush on in middle school who is now happily in a relationship with another man. This entire scene is so awkward, and Arquette is so good at playing this. She's amazing. Yeah. Oh, man. Just the where he's obviously not trying to see her. And she's just like, hey, and she doesn't get the hint. And she's just like, hey, hey, don't, don't I? It's just like, uh, transport me out of this. Yeah. Every and time that, I looked out my window, I'd see you walking by. <laughs> like, oh, God. Uh, yeah, I had a friend like, who yeah. lived there. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I also love the way that scene ends where, like, after, like, Gala, like, lashes out of reaching, she starts, like, crying. And it's, like, really sad. And, like, the way she, like, spits back at him, like, yeah, fuck you and everything. Like, because she's, like, so composed like, throughout so much in the movie and everything. But then Rosanna Arquette, she says, like, she's, like, looking over in the back and she's, like, like, she says, like, she's crying, sort of mouse, and then, like, sort of waves her hand and everything. It's just, like, sort of the flippancy of it. It's just, like, so, it's, like, such, like, a devastating yeah. button on that scene where it's just, like, this, yeah. is, this is just a moment that they'll be, that couple will be witnessing and then they'll be back to their own cushy lives. Like, right, because even after Wendy stops talking to them and then it's just uh, Layla and Billy talking and whatnot, you can still see Roseanne Arquette in the background, like, looking at them and smiling and laughing and whatnot, and that just made it even more just... Ugh. They he her fiance even like gets into the same side of the booth and they seem like they're going at it at one point <laughs> yeah, uh, like now. yeah and it's so uncomfortable yeah yeah it, it showed like a casualness to that cruelty as well yes. like it, it's not only like flippancy but it's like oh this woman has definitely tried to make people feel small before mm-hmm. and her husband too and, he's like laughing when he's inviting them for dinner it's like he's like he doesn't believe it's serious yeah, for right. like a second. well since yeah, you yeah. went to elementary school together do you want to sit with us like it's like that type of uh, yeah yeah Ugh. I totally thought it was like uh, they were having like uh, he was a married dude in an affair. Like that's the energy that's it yeah. communicated to me. Like this is, is my is that quote unquote fiance. Well? Yeah. Oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just just like the bus scene from Dogma. Yeah. Are you married <laughs> to her? Not that it's any of your fucking business, but no. Yeah. Uh, Billy leaves Layla alone in the diner after a brief argument, but regretting his outburst, returns and apologizes to her. Billy and Layla check into a motel where Billy and Layla have a deep conversation and eventually meet that they have fallen in love with each other and they both go to sleep. Um, and throughout all of this, Billy is waiting until like 3 a.m. whenever uh, the guy two. is going to be two. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because a few hours after midnight he wakes up and he's about to leave to exact his revenge on Wood when Leela awakens. Despite Layla's doubts that he'll return in proclamation of her love for him, he leaves, lying to her that he'll return in a few minutes with hot chocolate for her. Shortly after leaving Layla at the motel, Billy finds Scott Wood, now the owner of a topless bar at, at Wood's own bar. He walks over to Wood's table and shoots him in the head before shooting himself. His parents are then shown sitting by his grave with his mother showing more interest in a Buffalo's game on the radio than her own son's death. Uh, however, this is all shown to be inside of Billy's mind. Billy leaves the bar without killing Wood, realizing that 
in Layla, he has finally found a person who truly loves him. After making amends with his friend Goon, played by Kevin Corrigan on a payphone, the film ends with Billy elatedly buying Layla her hot chocolate and a heart-shaped cookie and buying another for a man sitting nearby who tells him he has a girlfriend before returning to Layla at the motel. Did I mean, anyone yeah. start to think during the funeral scene that turns out not to be real? Okay, this is a little broad now. And then it actually, by revealing that it's not real, that actually made so much sense and is actually, like, in retrospect, a really darkly funny joke. Because <laughs> I was just like, oh, come on. Like, they're they're caricature, sort of, but, like, not, not to this extent. And then you're like, oh, wait, of course you'd be imagining that. Like... I, I think Keith Phipps said this in AV Club, but he said every character in this movie could have been out of Blue Velvet. <laughs> like, it feels like that. every character. Well, the, the lip syncing scene with um, Ben sure. Gazzaro, I, I'm sure someone has mentioned that that's like that seems like almost like the the Roy Orbison uh, in Dream scene from Blue Velvet. In dreams, yeah. yeah, sure. Um, but yeah. but those very specific personas in terms of how they interact with people, like it's just a mm-hmm. a collection of just kind of like odious ticks in a sense like it's it's very strange but also not a caricature yeah like it's yeah by all accounts this should be so much broader yeah than yeah but then it is but also, it plays it so sincerely i mean that's yes. the thing too like the the phone scene with um corrigan near the end where gallo is like just barely keeping it together it's like he's leaving this bowling stuff behind and like he's like his voice he's like clenching his face and everything trying to not cry and everything it's like so unbelievably sad and everything. And like you do, and Corrigan plays it so well where he is like genuinely sympathetic. You're not going to do something bad, Billy. You're not going to do it. Are you? Yeah. Well, I love that every other character, I mean, that scene with Christina Ricci in the hotel room where she knows exactly what's going on. She knows like, and, Oh yeah. And I think she is being sincere. It's, it's fascinating how I think she's, I think she's not, being 100% honest and being like, you're the nicest person I've ever known, especially because she just said some horrible things to her at Denny's and she just told him to fuck off. But she's saying exactly what he knows he needs to hear in order for to protect him in a weird way. And that's... It's, it's that thing that I wrestled with going back and forth where I'm like, is this a character that is written specifically so the protagonist has that sort of, as we've mentioned numerous times, that manic pixie dream girl energy that is necessary for the plot to move forward? Or am I robbing this character of any agency by just lumping her into that category in order to actually reveal layers that she is doing anything in her power to protect him and also eradicating any sense of genuine feelings that she has for me, even if they're, even if they're over-exaggerated or hyperbolic. Um... And ultimately where I come down to it is two things can be true. <laughs> like, I, I, I think that it's a bit of both. Um, one other detail that I just couldn't, I thought was very funny was when, and I'm sorry, I know I was, I left for a bit when we started the plot synopsis. I had to leave the room for a sec. But when she first goes to his parents' house, they're like, can I get you a drink, honey? And she's like, uh, can I have a rum and coke? And they're like, wait, what, honey? Uh, I mean a ginger ale? Like, And even Vincent Gallo just looking like, did you really fucking ask my mom that? Like, And then from that point on, she only orders hot chocolate, which is such an innocent, childlike drink to get. Uh, uh-huh. I That's couldn't, what I was thinking, too. Because she says she's 25, right? I think... 
Yeah, well, Gallo also says, like, we met in high school, and I'm, like, thinking, there's no way you look like you were the same age and everything. It's, like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, yeah, because he, he was, like, 40-something when they made this. Yeah. I, I think one other wrinkle, too, uh, that I found really interesting is the plot only moves forward in payphone conversations. The, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, the only way things point. move forward is when they're talking. Like, a, a, in a sense... Like, nothing that uh, Billy and Layla say to each other has any reflection on the general narrative. Like, it's, they are just, like, constantly, like, you know, doing their version of, like, whiling away the hours. Like, everything is just a uh, means to an end, in a sense, which is maybe, which goes back to, I guess, um... Shoot, I forgot who said it was transactional. It was um, Kevin or Bryden. I'm not sure which of you said it, but there's just such a transactional quality to that sounds uh, way too so much of their relationships. <laughs> well, this sense yeah. of like an arrangement, sort of. I think that, that maybe that's what I was talking about with like with the yes. young Michael Vincent character for sure. That's definitely yeah. You, that's a great point. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, yeah. That's that's a really good touch that she says. Rum and Coke, and then only ask for hot chocolate. I just, and yeah, if if it was essential to the narrative, I uh, might be less forgiving of it. But it's, it feels so impulsive in the moment. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I think you could just as well have an interpretation where Billy's like, I'm not any better than this naked dude surrounded by a harem in the strip club. Uh, Why is he nude? Why is he nude? Because <laughs> it's two o'clock in the morning, man. I don't know. Uh, I think it's also funny that as soon as they leave the house, that's when Christine Ricci is kind of in power now, because she was like, I want to stop and get a hot chocolate. He's like, what? And then eventually they fucking do, so... Yeah. She was oh, like, I, I, I did. She was like, I did what you asked me to do, and now I want to do what I want to do. Yeah. It's also interesting you mentioned, Michael, because this was something that stuck out to me about the phone conversations. At the end, it's like the ending is like it's the contradictions that sort of like make it like uh, make it interesting. Where like it is like yes, he rejects the violent fantasy and and trades it in for another one. And it's interesting that all the other phone that it's only his side of the conversation that he you hear when he's talking with rocky on the phone with kevin corrigan he's saying like guess what i met a girl it's just his side of the conversation you're not really hearing yeah anything else well i mean that's I, a great point well i guess you do hear just his side i think when he first calls his mom and he's like telling her to turn that to tv or whatever but it's interesting how it's yeah. like it is almost like yes he doesn't take the violent path and that's that's a nice bit of hope and everything but it is also like how much is he one how much has he really changed and also, how long will it be will you be able to sustain this sort of charade and everything? How much will it be sincere? I don't know. Yes. And, and how much of that has to do with the fact that he was a sing he was an only child in a household raised by parents who constantly talk over him at all times? Mm -hmm. That's interesting too. That's a good point. Yeah. Like, you know, this movie it's good. Yeah. Keep talking about it. it just keeps going up. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> I think like I, I can't I, I mean, obviously, it's the timing. I don't know if I would have related them, but just like thinking about this in relation to Jesus's son is just it's it was very interesting because at certain points I was like, oh, are they 
is he also an addict? Like, is he also into drugs? Because there are comparisons in, in, uh, sorry, in, in the temperaments of, especially Samantha Morton and someone like, um, uh, Vincent Gallo. And I just, I think that's, that's super interesting that this type of character, I don't know, like it's, it's this, I, and I um, I want to mention something briefly we talked about before we started. So one of the most revealing interviews that I found was not with a big publication, but with a small Buffalo newspaper. The Daily Beast. And oh. the, uh, the Daily, <laughs> uh, it is the public something. Mm-hmm. The Daily Public, that's what uh-huh. it's called. Uh, and this is a Buffalo newspaper. And this a was a fake newspaper name, the Daily Public. <laughs> might as well, might as well just be called the News. Yeah. <laughs> and this was March thirtieth, twenty fifteen, and it is by far the kindest interview I've seen Gallo give to someone. And I want to mention that because I'd really like to talk about the portrayal of Buffalo in this movie. Um, because it sure seems to show Buffalo as kind of this very scuzzy town. The landmarks are... God, I want to live in it, though. Oh, it looks so <laughs> well, cold. I've heard it's very affordable to live there. I was talking with my brother recently. He said, like, yeah, you could, like, buy a house out, out there in Buffalo. And, like, it would be, like, super affordable. I'm like, should I move to let's Buffalo? Like, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Dan Mecca grew up in Buffalo. I think Jordan Rop did oh, as well. Oh, as, cool. as far as... Uh, yeah, as I, I know Dan Mecca is a friend of the show, but, um, yeah. mm-hmm. it's, um, uh, I was, but yeah. really quick, I was going to say, you were talking about uh, similarities of, or, or saying if Gallo is, could be like an addict or something. I would say no to that because when he, whenever he gets out of his delusion of the strip club and Wood hands him a shot, he doesn't even take the shot. Yeah. Yeah. And if he was if he was any type of addict, he'd still take the shot and then leave. And on like, top of that, good point. Um, without spoiling too much, uh, Chloe Sevigny's character in the Brown Bunny is an addict, and uh, his yeah. character, in the way that he, you as the movie unf- uh, unfolds, you find out he has some very strong feelings towards that character being an addict. It's not even explicitly said, but you're kind of meant to pick up on that the other thing i will say is i think that's a really good point that you bring up michael is that the kindest interview he gave is one that was buffalo located um and we just watched a clip that i sent to all of us about roger ebert talking to gallo after he saw the recut version of the brown bunny and now that you bring this up he mentions to roger ebert like when you are when you called the Brown Bunny, the worst film in the history of the Cannes Film Festival. Everyone heard about it. Even my, even people, even my family in home, uh, Buffalo heard about it. So he clearly has some ties for, he's, it's clear that he is someone who is consistently, um, he's clearly um, sensitive and uh, about even how, everyone views him including from when he was a kid like it's Mm. clear that he he is almost hyper aware and almost overly sensitive to how people view him throughout his life which is very interesting to me because 
it, it, it makes so much sense. And even though he'll lash out and say the, the most edgelordy, stupid shit, it, it feels like a reflexive knee-jerk thing to me where I, I guess this goes beyond the movie, but it is like, I guess why I find this film so interesting and why when you read all the terrible things he says is like, I feel like he does lay out just so many things. He, so many vulnerabilities, so many, um, uh, parts of himself that he will not talk about even with people intimately in public. At least that's what I'm getting and that he lays it out through his art. And then when people respond negatively to it, he lashes out as if he was a child, much like how his character in Buffalo 66 lashes out as if he were a child, which is why I think it's impossible to, as we talked about, separate the art from the artist here and how much of this is fiction and how much of it is, you know, uh, semi-autobiographical, which obviously I'm not saying this is all semi-autobiographical. It's just, I don't know. I don't know if that was a tangent that made any sense. But no, <laughs> like it does. It does make sense. I mean, the movie could definitely be seen as like you know an outlet for like any demons that he has. The problem is that like you know maybe the demons were not just left in the film. You know, because like, it's like it's like, it'd be the kind of, an ideal scenario would be like I'm gonna he'd purge all his feelings in this movie and it'd be you know, be a great movie, still is a great movie and everything, but, it, but it'd be the kind of thing where it's like, all right, cool, now I can be chill in my real life or whatever, and then it's like, well, no, it's... No, <laughs> no. Still carries that aggro energy into into his real life. Uh, it, so. It's like, if somebody gives him a negative review, it feels like a stab in the back, like, I, I told you all of my most intimate secrets, how dare you go behind my bed? It's like, and it's, that almost feels like transactional to use that word is like i told you all of my everything i have that is uh that i am self-conscious about and and i laid it out bare and how dare you tell me that what i yeah. did tell you is like awful, it's a you know like, yeah it's it's a it's a own wilson and uh zoo later this and that was like this guy's really hurting me mm-hmm. and it hurt yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's like i told you in my film i was an asshole and then you told me I was an asshole? <laughs> You're an asshole! Yeah. I mean, the one thing that really was, like, the one big thing, and that, I don't know if we've talked about it yet, but the homophobia that happens in the first act, where I was Ooh, like, I was he's just it's, about to mention It's literally it. almost the first thing, besides saying, where's the bathroom? That's, like, yeah. the first thing he says. It's just which, the F word, like, which, nine times. Nine and times. And then he also writes in that the guy has to comment that he has a huge dick. Huge dick. Like, That's the on. one thing where I was just like, Okay, I yeah, get what you're doing yeah. and that you're making me dislike you. And clearly he is not endorsing. And I'm not even saying, uh, to me that's, you know, like, Vincent Gallo is purposely adding this to be like, this is not okay. But do you feel this way? Because I think you do. <laughs> you know, like, I think it's, there, but there's an intimacy. It's an easy way to hate the character that we would never do nowadays. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. I, you would never. It is. It is even two to three minutes, too. It's not immediate. Like, you're right that, like, he just looks for the bathroom for a while. But he looks for quite a while. And you don't get this, like, antagonistic reflex until we're in the bathroom. Uh Like, it is it is almost like you get a counter to that person for a few minutes. Like, it, it did. I mean, yeah, it's, it's never related to a scene more. Just trying to find a place to piss. Oh my god, it's I, so funny, especially and in it, New York. And, oh, yeah. also, there's something to him when he goes behind the car too. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> it starts to back up. It's she walks into the car and starts to back up. It's so funny. That's. That's, I'm sorry, Brandon. No, it's I interrupted. It's, no, it's, you're all right. That this is very funny. Um, and it's 
it, but it also is interesting that like you know it adds to like sort of it is almost like kind of making it empathetic i think too where, like where he's just out of prison and he's still being treated like not very well and i think where like he comes in and he's just like i just need to use the bathroom and the guy doesn't even like it's like the faceless cafe owner's like we're closed you're not using this bathroom or whatever and like shuts him out and like but then yeah and then like he arose some of that empathy by, by being homophobic i will say obviously don't use those words and everything but it, but i will say gallo is very funny i think in the physical way that where he's just like stamping around and everything like looking just so ridiculous and everything like there is like just this very like what wiry energy to him where he's just like spinning around on his heels and everything. yeah just, like, yeah, he, yeah. Looked, he never looks cool that's i do love that whenever he gets Christina Ricci in the car and whatnot, and he drives, and he's like, pull over here, and he pees behind a tree, and he was just like, okay, I'd like to apologize. I was <laughs> yeah. like, my first thought was like, dog, you ever need to piss so bad you just turned into a homophobe? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when Rosé Barra said that, like, Ambien made her racist or something. <laughs> you ever been so sleepy you just turned into a racist? <laughs> uh, I mean, it is that thing where it is also like, he would not have put that in if he didn't he would not put that scene in if we if, if he meant for that to be relatable in a likable way. You know what I mean? Even oh, yeah, in 1998. No, no. That's what's complicated about that scene is I hate the fact that the character goes, it's so big, like, we don't need that. That's the one part of that scene that I was just like, oh, come on. But at the same time, I'm like, that is, it goes with what I'm trying to say or what I think he's saying here is, like, he has ugly sides of him and he might hate that part of himself, too, but it's yeah. there. And I... I will I will say this. I I do not appreciate the homophobia, but I do appreciate that he's at least laying it out bare for us as opposed to being like tolerant of it per se and then we find out later about something like that yeah, in his sure, personal sure. life. If that makes any sense. I know that sounds no, like for sure. Yeah. Um I th- I think to uh Oh, Brian, do you have something? Well, couple of things also like it's believable that a guy who is that age grew up with like parents who were like who are maybe like of that generation would maybe like he would come up with those attitudes and i think that was like a common word also especially in 1998 that word was getting thrown around uh way more yes and is it this might be a bit of a reach but like the sort of like the masculinity where he's just constantly on the defensive and also maybe wielding and wielding that slur do you think because we don't get a whole lot of details about what his life in prison was like, but do you think maybe that is connected at all? Sort of like the defensiveness where he's just like always on guard and also yeah, maybe where probably. that's Absolutely. like maybe he's in scenarios where he is sexually threatened. I, I, that's maybe a little... Or even worse. I, might be, I mean, yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know if... I, I, is that he's too like, much of a reason? Always, and, and I'm not, yeah, and he's and, always on guard because even when he's outside his parents' house and he's like, can you just hold me? What are you doing? Don't touch me. Like, Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be like... Uh, flippant or like a glib or anything. Oh, yeah, I hope yeah. I'm not, but like, it's, not. but it's something that like maybe to think about. But yeah, um. well, both of his no, movies. No, the prison context is. I sorry, I I, I oh, think no. that's that's something I genuinely hadn't thought about. Same I, and that same. Hmm. And on top of that, it's it is. I, I know we're not reviewing the brown bunny here, but it is. I mean, we all know about the controversial, unsimulated oral sex scene in the brown bunny. It's genuinely, like, I kind of expected, based on that controversy that I knew before seeing this movie, that Christina Ricci would be exploited. Like, both in terms, uh, both by the camera and by the character himself. And in The Brown Bunny, he is also, the entire 70 minutes he's driving around and still, um, 
having difficulties connecting to women. And it is because he's hung up over this Chloe Sydney character. And then that scene happens and it's just as uncomfortable. And, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's so complicated because I am Christi- uh, Chloe Sydney has gone on record saying she's at peace with it. You know, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, if that's what she said at the time, that's what she said at the time. I don't want to read too much into it and say what happened. But then there is a, that, a scene following that that is also about just his discomfort with connecting with people intimately, both on a, uh, a physical and a spiritual level that I find to be, again, why I wrestle with him so much is he's being honest about ugly sides of masculinity in many ways. And it's very telling in ways that I've never seen before. And also it's, uh, it's very, it's, it's, it's very discomforting. And also, but, but I, I can't, that's, that's the thing about, him and how he writes himself into all of his movies that I, I when does it with. become so vivid that it no longer becomes you know great characterization exactly how much of this is fiction how much of it is telling and I think a lot of it is telling I don't know where that line is drawn and there's very little yeah uh, what were you gonna say Michael I'm sorry no I just oh god this has just been something we have uh, I, I've been talking about with so many people, including you guys outside this podcast, uh, in terms of people like uh, Abel Ferreira, which mm-hmm. weirdly enough, yep. Gallo is in uh, Ferreira's films, and I'm not I'm not saying there's a direct correlation there, but rather it's it's very difficult to push away not even anything in terms of this being a vanity project. It's just like, it's very difficult to, Brenton's used the word demons. It does, it, there are demons on screen yes. here. Whether you want to say that's coming from his personal life or not, this is engaging with things that are consistently uncompromisingly ugly. Yes. And that is, you know, uh, like there were definitely times in this that reminded me of like good time. I already mentioned the Safties, mm-hmm. but like yeah. even that, uh, the verisimilitude the is that I've never said that word out loud. Verisimilitude. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Speaking of posturing. Michael, I have not used that word <laughs> ever either. So you're in good company here. <laughs> the emotional realism of good time was something that's, always stuck with me beyond the filmmaking. This even feels like next level. This mm-hmm. feels in a way like I, it's totally understandable that as much as we keep trying to stay within the frame, it's so easy to go outside the frame and, and be like, mm-hmm. all right, what, what, what do we, you know, uh, how do we just look at this as mechanics? How do we just look at this as a, a series of, you know, often brilliant decisions working together? <laughs> yeah.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Almost Major. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Please follow the pod on Twitter at Almost Major to keep up to date with what movies we will be covering in the future. Myself, I can be found on Twitter and Letterboxd at Kev Bonesy. Bryden can be found on Twitter at Bryden Doyle and on Letterboxd at J Doyle. Charlie can be found on Twitter and Letterboxd at CTNash91. Once again, thank you for listening.